Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in the 61st session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we conclude the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and attempt heroically to discuss the pyre of Denethor. We are going to be talking about heroism at its absolutely highest, most, most apotheotic state in the course of The Lord of the Rings. Well, maybe. We will, of course, have the opportunity within the next couple of weeks here on There and Back Again to segue away from such grand doings and great deeds of men to a couple of hobbits who are currently hanging out in Mordor. More on that in a couple of weeks' time, but I'm so eager to start talking about Frodo and Sam again, you guys. Though tonight's reading is probably my favorite in the entire book. Like, I don't think that's too scandalous, right? I know that some people don't really like book five of The Lord of the Rings. I know that all of this battle speech and and great heroic daring do isn't everyone's cup of tea. I completely get that. I completely respect that. But for me personally, though I have matured in my reading, as I've said before, originally when I read The Lord of the Rings, my first few times through this book, in fact, I was so absorbed in the story of Frodo and Sam that I was skipping over everything that wasn't Frodo and Sam. I skipped over much of book three. I skipped over much of book five. I just wanted to get back to their story. But now, well, now I see the glory that is the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. So last week, we talked a little about, um, about the fall of Theoden King, of the ride of the Rohirrim, of the sweep down from the hills after being accompanied by the, the wild folk of the forest by Han Khan. Thank you to everyone who enjoyed my pronunciation of that and the voice that I gave to that character last week. I got a surprising amount of email about that. I'm not going to lie. Um, so we, we talked about the ride of the Rohirrim. We talked about the glory of Theoden King. We talked, of course, about Eowyn and Mary tag-teaming the Witch King of Angmar. But we must, of course, pick up in the aftermath of Theoden's death. We begin with a slide that I have entitled, Farewell to Theoden King. Then one of the knights took the king's banner from the hand of Guthlaf, the banner-bearer, who lay dead, and he lifted it up. Slowly Theoden opened his eyes. Seeing the banner, he made a sign that it should be given to Aomer. Hail, king of the mark, he said. Ride now to victory. Bid Eowyn farewell. And so he died, and knew not that Eowyn lay near him. And those who stood by wept, crying, Theoden king! Theoden king! But Eomer said to them, Mourn not overmuch! Mighty was the fallen, meet was his ending. When his mound is raised, women then shall weep. War now calls us! Yet he himself wept as he spoke. Let his knights remain here, he said, and bear his body in honor from the field, lest the battle ride over it. Yea, and all these other of the king's men that lie here. And he looked at the slain, recalling their names. Then suddenly he beheld his sister Eowyn as she lay, and he knew her. He stood a moment as a man who was pierced in the midst of a cry by an arrow through the heart, and then his face went deathly white and a cold fury rose in him, so that all speech failed him for a while. A fey mood took him. Eowyn! Eowyn! he cried at last. Eowyn, how come you here? What madness or devilry is this? Death! 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 Take us all! Then, without taking counsel or waiting for the approach of the men of the city, he spurred headlong back to the front of the great host and blew a horn and cried aloud for the onset. Over the field rang his clear voice, calling, Death! Ride! Ride to ruin and the world's ending! And with that, the host began to move. But the Rohirrim sang no more. Death, they cried with one voice, loud and terrible, and gathering speed like a great tide, their battle swept about their fallen king and passed, roaring away southwards. And so, Theoden king dies and passes the standard of his army, passes the token of his very kingship on to his nephew, his new adopted son, Eomer. And of course, we believe at this moment that Eowyn too has fallen. More on that thanks to an assist from Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth in just a few slides time. Don't worry, you guys. Eowyn does not die at this time. And nor does Eomer, by all accounts, burst the horn that he is blowing here. That is reserved solely for Theoden in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. 
Hail, King of the Mark, ride now to victory, bid Eowyn farewell. That ceremonial passing of the torch, that passing of the kingship from Theoden, who speaks these words with his last breath, to Eomer is incredibly important. That passing of kingship from father to son, from king to heir, I suppose, because we don't just pass from fathers to sons in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, that passing of kingship is a vitally important beat here in our understanding of Theoden. He dies somewhat unceremoniously, right? His horse falls on top of him. Snowmane, bane of Theoden King, falls on top of him and he perishes. But it's not without glory and it's not without accomplishment. And in this moment in which Theoden dies, we are urged to reflect upon Denethor. Currently, well, we'll find out what Denethor is currently doing, actually, in the very next chapter of uh, of The Lord of the Rings. More not over much, says Eomer. So his first instinct is, okay, Things are bad. Theoden has fallen. My father, the king of Rohan, has fallen. But more not overmuch. Mighty was the fallen. Meat was his ending. He died gloriously. He died appropriately. This was the ending that Theoden wanted for his life. This is the ending that every king of Rohan wants for their life. Meat was his ending. When his mound is raised, women, women then shall weep. So only when we gather together in the peaceful aftermath of this battle unspoken, if indeed there is a peaceful aftermath of this battle, then we will weep, then we will grieve, but now is not the time. But it is seeing Eowyn laying there. Then suddenly he beheld his sister Eowyn as she lay, and he knew her. I've talked before about Tolkien's facility with those incredibly simple, incredibly punchy sentences that he offers us, right? We, we get this from time to time where his, his grand rhetoric will suddenly collapse into something very simple and something very heartbreaking more often than not for my money, and he knew her, is one of the most powerful that we'll get in the entire book. He stood a moment as a man who was pierced in the midst of a cry by an arrow through the heart, and then his face went deathly white, and a cold fury rose in him, so that all speech failed him for a while. A fey mood took him. Here we are, once more, another character, another Rohiric character, becoming fey in the midst of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. We're going to talk a little more about Eomer as we move forward, but... It is worth noting here that distinction for him personally between kingship, this mantle that has been entrusted to him, granted to him, thrust upon him, I suppose, and his personal connection with his sister. This moment, turning from the just and appropriate grief, right? He's saying, do not cry now, more not over much. And yet he himself is weeping as he says it. More not over much. We've got some stuff to do, you guys. It's it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll weep later. It's going to be fine. But the death of Eowyn is very different for Eomer because this is the death of his sister. This is the death of, well, of what, I suppose, is the question. Why is he so heartsick by the apparent death of Eowyn at this time? Is it because she is his sister and therefore in some kind of, yes, admittedly patriarchal, some kind of feudalistic sense under his care? Or is it simply that she is not supposed to be here? Is it that her death is not meet, that her death is not appropriate to her standing and her station? Is Eomer seeing something here that is greater than that. And I don't think that we necessarily need to pin this on the fact that a woman has fallen in battle, right? I'm not necessarily sure, though that is certainly a valid interpretation of the text, right? This could be a fairly heavy-handed patriarchal beat from Eomer here. That's absolutely acknowledged. But it's also possible that he is seeing something worse, because Eowyn was not supposed to be in the battle because she was entrusted with the care of the people of Rohan. She was entrusted with the preservation of Metheselt if all else should fail, the, the preservation of Edoras if all else should fail, and she herself has fallen. She is, in some sense, a symbol of the civil hope 
of the Rohirrim. They have little, if any, military hope, right? That is why Eomer is fey at this point. He is charging into battle with the belief that death awaits him, not just because Theoden has died. Certainly he doesn't turn fey at that moment. He doesn't believe that death is, is haunting him or waiting for him, and he certainly doesn't go to seek death in the moment that his king, his father, dies. He does it at the moment where he realizes that his sister also has fallen. I like to read this as an acknowledgement that Eomer is, is reflecting upon the fall of the civil hope of Rohan, the fall of the society of Rohan, that no matter what happens on the fields of Pelennor now, there's no hope for Rohan. Even if they win out, well, the destruction has already been too terrible, right? He himself has been brutally gutted by the fall of his father, the adopted father, obviously, yes, but the, the fall of his father figure and now the fall of his sister too. But I think it's also recognizing that if they falter, if they fail, no hope for Rohan now continues. They are not riding in the defense of their own country anymore. Their country has already been taken by the shadow, even if that shadow has yet to extend across the entirety of Middle-earth. Eowyn, Eowyn, he cried at last, Eowyn, how come you here? What madness or devilry is this? Death, 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 take us all. And so spurred on by Eomer's proclamation, death, ride to ruin and the world's ending, right? The world's ending there does seem to speak to me of that connection back to the hope for Rohan. Now there is no hope. Now the world is ending. It doesn't matter what happens next, right? It, it really doesn't count for anything because Eowyn is lying here, apparently dead on the field. And so the men of Rohan ride forth once more, not in song, not to the sound of horns, not in that that glad and fierce battle fury which took them before as they, they swamped the Pelennor field in their first cavalry charge. Now it is darker, now it is grimmer, and we can see that fey aspect in, in Eomer reflected, I think, in the ride of his men. Death, they cried with one voice, loud and terrible, and gathering speed like a great tide, their battle swept about their fallen king and passed, roaring away southwards. So, we then move into a little beat of, uh, of um, oh, interesting, important to remember that Eomer doesn't know that Eowyn is here of her own volition, says Joseph. Yes, which I think is, is acknowledged there with what madness or devilry is this? Like, what the hell? You are not supposed to be here. And he apparently has no sense even that she wanted to be here. What madness or devilry? Whose madness? Is it Eowyn's madness? I, I guess maybe it could be, right? That could be a possible interpretation of his word there, that, that he is crediting her lack of caution, lack of good sense, lack of, I mean, in the simplest sense, kind of, of propriety and responsibility, right? You had a super important job to do, Eowyn, as Aragorn definitely pointed out to you before he went into the paths of the dead. You had a super important responsibility, but you were here instead. Let's move on to the passing of Mary's sword. We're going to talk just briefly about this. We did talk about this a little bit last time in our discussion about who really kills the Witch King of Angmar. As you'll recall, Mary sneaks around behind the uh, the Black Commander and and stabs up beneath his hauberk, severing his or severing the sinews of his knee, I suppose. And then Eowyn gets the killing blow, and thus the uh, Lord of the Nazgul passes from the mortal realm uh, for for this age. His voice is not heard in this age, which. I did rather brilliantly hear some critics of, of Tolkien refer to as like grim foreshadowing that the Lord of the Nazgul would in fact return and the Lord of the Nazgul would in fact have returned, right? There is no guarantee that this slaying of the Witch King of Angmar would have stuck. They were driven off from the field of battle before. They have suffered horrific defeats before and they have always returned. Now, of course, 
in a few days' time, what, uh, 10 days, 9, 10 days from now, that is going to be a moot point. That, that, that question will be answered with a pretty comprehensive piece of punctuation there, right? But it is possible that, that contained within that thought, uh, will be heard no more in this age of the world, as Tolkien says, that that could be some kind of grim foreshadowing that the Lord of the Nazgul may one day return. Spoilers. He definitely won't. He definitely won't return at that point. And still, Mariadic the hobbit stood there blinking through his tears, and no one spoke to him. Indeed, none seemed to heed him. He brushed away the tears and stooped to pick up the green shield that Eowyn had given him, and he slung it at his back. Then he looked for a sword that he had let fall, for even as he struck his blow, his arm was numbed, and now he could use only his left hand. And behold, there lay his weapon, but the blade was smoking like a dry branch that had been thrust in a fire, and as he watched it, it writhed and withered and was consumed." So passed the sword of the Barrowdowns, work of Westerness. But glad would he have been to know its fate who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom when the Dunedain were young, and chief among their foes was the dread realm of Angmar and its sorcerer king. No other blade, not though mightier hands had wielded it, would have dealt a foe a wound so bitter, cleaving the undead flesh, breaking the spell that knit his unseen sinews to his will. Now, we talked a little about that last part in last week's session. No other blade, not though mightier hands had wielded it, would have dealt that foe a wound so bitter. Now, bitter does not mean mortal, right? This does not necessarily imply that Mary is in fact responsible for striking the killing blow against the witch king of Angmar. But what we're doing here is recognizing the, the mythic magnitude of this moment. Look at how we transition. We transition twice here in this very short excerpt, in fact. So first off, Mary's by himself and he's weeping and no one is heeding him. And we might be tempted to read that as a continuation of the kind of compact of silence that had accompanied Mary's trip with the Rahirim to Gondor in the first place, right? You'll remember Elfhelm kind of tacitly ignoring Mary because don't ask, don't tell, I suppose. If I don't see him, then I'm not morally obligated or legally obligated or obligated by honor to report his presence here to Theoden King. So I'm just going to pretend that he's a piece of baggage and then I have plausible deniability. Like, okay, that that's kind of protecting Mary there as much as it's protecting anyone else. I I'm less inclined to read this beat as a repetition of that beat as I am to see the Rohirrim as being completely consumed in a uniquely Rohiric experience here. Not to say that grief, not even grief over a fallen king is uniquely Rohiric, right? The, the, the men of Gondor have known that for far too long, of course, and men of other kingdoms too, the, the shattered kingdom of Arnor in the north. You know, when Cardolan fell and the men of that battle were interred in the Barrow Downs, right? <laughs> Thus the, the Barrow Blade passes down to Mary in the first place. They have known the grief of a fallen king, but they have not known the grief of this particular king. They are not men of Rohan as the king of the Rohirrim falls. This might be something that preserves Mary from this shared grief, though he is having his own grief. But it's not, he's not grieving for the king of Rohan, he is grieving for Theoden. And that, I think, is a very different and much more personal, much more intimate connection there. So we have that first transition. He, he stoops up the green shield and slings it at his back. He's looking for the sword. Even as he struck the blow, his arm was numbed. He could use only his left hand. And behold, there lay his weapon. So that behold, as it so often does, signifying an elevation into a more formal kind of language. And behold, there lay his weapon, but the blade was smoking like a dry branch that had been thrust in a fire, and as he watched it, it writhed and withered and was consumed. And you guys, the writhing is the least pleasant part of that for me. That's that's pretty disquieting. I don't like that at all, right? The barrow blade is writhing. It withers and was consumed. And then we transition still further. We, we move still higher in our rhetorical scale here. 
So passed the sword of the Barrowdowns, work of Western ass. But glad would he have been to know its fate who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom when the Dunedain were young. Look at that archaic syntax that we get there. Look at that sentence construction. But glad, glad would he have been to know its fate who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom when the Dunedain were young. And chief among their foes was the dread realm of Angmar and its sorcerer king. Yes, glad would the smith who forged this blade have been if he knew that ultimately, someday through incomparable and, and inconceivable circumstance, it would have played a major part in the slaying of the Witch King of Angmar. That was its purpose. That was, that was the purpose for which it was intended. And we'll pick up on that thought with Pippin in just a little bit, by which I mean probably next week. But, but very soon, Pippin is going to reflect on a very similar thought, and it's worth remembering this beat when we get there. As I said last week, I like to read the slaying of the Witch King of Angmar as as a tag team partnership between Eowyn and Merry. In light of the prophecy, I find that enormously satisfying, that no man's hand fells the, the Lord of the Nazgul, fells the, black, the chief of the Black Riders, fells the Witch King of Angmar. Rather, it is the combination of a woman and a hobbit. No man is Merry. Let's keep pushing on and get to, as I mentioned earlier, the assist from Prince Imrahil. Prince Imrahil absolutely earning his place in this book in this moment because, God, things could have gone so much worse. Men now raised the king, and laying cloaks upon spear truncheons, they made, to sh they made shift to bear him away toward the city. And others lifted Eowyn gently up and bore her after him. But the men of the king's household, they could not yet bring from the field, for seven of the king's knights had fallen there, and Deorene, their chief, was among them. So they laid them apart from their foes and the fell beast and set spears about them. And afterwards, when all was over, men returned and made a fire there and burned the carcass of the beast. But for Snowmane, they dug a grave and set up a stone upon which was carved in the tongues of Gondor and the Mark, faithful servant, yet master's bane, lightfoot's foal, swift Snowmane. Green and long grew the grass on Snowmane's how, but ever black and bare was the ground where the beast was burned. Now, slowly and sadly, Merry walked beside the bearers, and he gave no more heed to the battle. He was weary and full of pain, and his limbs trembled as with a chill. A great rain came out of the sea, and it seems that all things wept for Theoden and Eowyn, quenching the fires in the city with grey tears. It was through a mist that presently he saw the van of the men of Gondor approaching. Imrahil, prince of Dol Amroth, rode up and drew rein before them. "'What burden do you bear, men of Rohan?' he cried. "'Theoden king,' they answered. "'He is dead.' But Eomer king now rides in the battle. He is with the white crest in the wind. Then the prince went from his horse and knelt by the bier in honor of the king and his great onset. And he wept. And rising, he looked then on Eowyn and was amazed. Surely here is a woman, he said. Have ever the women of the Rohirrim come to war in our need? Nay, one only, they answered. The lady Eowyn is she sister of Eomer, and we knew naught of her riding until this hour, and greatly we rue it. Then the prince, seeing her beauty, though her face was pale and cold, touched her hand as he bent to look more closely on her. "'Men of Rohan!' he cried. "'Are there no leeches among you? She is hurt to the death, maybe, but I deem that she yet lives!' And he held the bright burnished vambrus that was upon his arm before her cold lips, and behold, a little mist was laid on it hardly to be seen. "'Haste now is needed,' he said, and he sent one riding back swiftly to the city to bring aid. But he, bowing low to the fallen, bade them farewell, and mounting rode away into battle." Of all the characters who embody that medieval sense of chivalry in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth, brother-in-law to Denethor, uncle to Faramir and Boromir, is perhaps the most notable. Because he does not sit either in the excessive classical heroic sense or the vainglorious sense with which we associate Boromir, right? He is not 
excessive in that regard, nor is he compromised in the way that Faramir is compromised. Now, Faramir, I would argue, is compromised in a very good way. Like, Faramir is compromised in perhaps the greatest way, as I've said many times before. Faramir, possibly the greatest man living in Middle-earth, with the exception of the returning king. And even then, I feel like Faramir could give that dude a run for his money, right? But Prince Imrahil embodies all of the great chivalric virtues that we associate with knights of Arthurian myth. Here, he demonstrates a great depth of pity and of empathy. He demonstrates a great sensitivity, but also a great wisdom. Men of Rohan, he cried, are there no leeches among you? Are there no doctors, effectively, right? Uh, is there no one here who knows medicine? Is there literally no one standing here who can tell the dead from the living? She is hurt to the death, maybe, but I deem that she yet lives. And sure enough, She's breathing, and we get another, behold, exclamation point, right? She's still living, and he dispatches for aid from the city, but he doesn't let that hold him back. He then immediately mounts and rejoins the battle, riding to aid Aomer King in the war against the remaining host of Mordor. I want to go back and look right at the beginning of this. In fact, there are a couple of really important elements that we have to look at here. The first is the narrative break. We break the chronology of our story. Now, we've done this before, of course. You'll remember that as the writers are, are setting forth from Rohan, as, as they are approaching Minas Tirith, in fact, we get, that, uh, we get that hard cut in the chronology where we throw forward to Rohiric poets, many generations hence, singing songs about this moment. So we know that Rohan is going to survive. Like, we're, we're not necessarily foreshadowing the, the ultimate doom of Rohan, even the ultimate doom of Middle-earth. That doesn't, I think, do anything to break our immersion in this moment, but nonetheless, it is an observable narrative phenomenon, and we do it again here. So they laid them apart from their foes and the fell beast and set spears about them. So they basically, they, they barricade, they, they build a, a palisade around the fallen bodies of Theoden's knights here, right? But then they return to them afterward. And afterwards, when all was over, men returned and made a fire there and burned the carcass of the beast. But for snow they dug a grave and set up a stone upon which was carved in the tongues of Gondor and the mark, faithful servant, yet master's bane, lightfoot's full, swift, uh, swift snowmane. Green and long grew the grass on snowmane's how, how, excuse me, but ever black and bare was the ground where the beast was burned. The beast here, of course, the fell steed of the witch king of Angmar, that, that awful draconic pterosaur-like being that, that just, yes, is just very terrible, but is, of course, slain with one stroke by Eowyn. Now, Eowyn gets a lot of credit for killing the witch king of Angmar, but damn if taking down that beast in one stroke isn't, well, perhaps not equally impressive, but still pretty, pretty impressive. So Snowmane is buried with a kind of tragic respect. Faithful servant, yet master's bane. Lightfoot's full, swift snowmane. That's the only inscription that reads upon her stone. She was faithful, but ultimately in the end, she was responsible for the death of, of, uh, of Theoden King. But green and long grew the grass on snowmane's how, but ever black and bare was the ground where the beast was burned. Goodness persists in the aftermath. Goodness restores life to the world. Evil can be conquered, can be vanquished, but will still be evil, will still be corruptive, right? The fell corpse of this ungainly beast that is that is unceremoniously buried is always going to be corrupt. It is never once it is never again going to permit life to return to the, the soil that lays over its its decaying flesh. I find that poetic and, and beautiful, and the recognition of Snowman there is is just lovely. 
Now, slowly and sadly, Mary walked beside the bearers, but he, and he gave no more heed to the battle. Okay, so we already have this, right? Our, our focus has switched. For much of the battle, we're riding with Theoden King, and, and we ride with, with the prince of the, the, uh, the prince of the, the chieftain, excuse me, of the Sathrons, right? We, we ride with him for a bit, but we are caught up in the battle. But as Aomer cries forth, death, death, ride to the world's end, the battle moves on past us, and we stay here in the aftermath, this quiet and intimate and solemn aftermath. Now, slowly and sadly, Mary walked beside the bearers, and he gave no more heed to the battle. He was weary and full of pain, and his limbs trembled as with a chill. A great rain came out of the sea, and it seemed that all things wept for Theoden and Eowyn, quenching the fires in the city with gray tears. Sounds pretty somber, right? We're, we're leaning into the pathetic fallacy here. It is raining the sky itself. Heaven itself is weeping for fallen Theoden and fallen Eowyn, and everything is terrible. You guys, this is the worst thing that could have happened. But of course, it isn't. And it isn't in two ways. The rain has come up from the sea. The air, once again, is moving. This wind that is going to blow so miraculously from the south, and we're definitely going to talk about that a little later, believe you me. This wind that is rising out of the sea is here. The clouds have lifted. They have, they have scattered to some degree, right? You'll remember that as Theoden rides forth, the first rays of the sun catch his shield and the grass around him is, is, is green once more, right? We're no longer under the dawnless day. Now we're, we're bringing light once more, which is fascinating, actually, because I was thinking, I've never made the connection before, but I was rereading last week's uh, excerpt and looking at what Khan Bori Khan says to Theoden about, about driving off the darkness with bright steel, right? with bright iron, I guess, is, is, the, is the word that he uses. And of course, Khan Bori Khan predicts exactly what is going to happen. Theoden, of course, does not crack the clouds above. Theoden riding forth does not bring the light. It does not bring the wind from the south. That is not exactly what happens. But the wind from the south comes nonetheless. And Theoden writing is kind of the, 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 the means by which the power of the wind from the south is made manifest, is made functional within the fictional frame. I find that absolutely fascinating because once again, and this goes all the way back to our discussions of The Hobbit, right? That goes back, I don't know, well, we're in episode 61 now, so it goes back at least 55 episodes, I would say, in the frame of There and Back Again, to our discussions of Bilbo's luck and Tolkienian eucatastrophe, and more importantly, action. Luck, eucatastrophe, just opens the door. Chance, if chance you call it, just presents an opportunity. That is all that it ever does in the frame of The Lord of the Rings, in the frame of The Hobbit 2. We never get a full-fledged deus ex machina, right? It is not the case that the forces of good are strewn across the battlefield and some angelic host, like the Valar, come themselves into Middle-earth and destroy Sauron's host. Like That doesn't happen. That is not what we're talking about here. The wind from the south grants an opportunity, it grants inspiration, but it is the action that realizes the potential contained within that intercessory grace. We are empowered to act, just as Bilbo was empowered to act back in Mirkwood, or even deep beneath the Misty Mountains, right? That moment of eucatastrophe brings opportunity, but action is what seals the deal. Does the wind from the south lift the clouds? Yes. Does Theoden riding forth lift the clouds? Yes, he gets to ride forth in that moment because of the wind. But if the wind had blown and the clouds above had, had been scattered and shredded by that warm southern wind that carries the rain with it, and Theoden hadn't ridden forth, if he had succumbed to despair there on the hilltop as he's looking down upon Minas Tirith, if there hadn't been the flash of light and the great boom that rolls out across the Pelennor all the way to the Ramas and beyond, 
if he hadn't ridden forth, then the light would not have been reflected on the grass in the same way. We wouldn't have had that moment of, of full realization. We need intercession, some, some supernatural force giving us divine hope, giving us, giving us grace here, but we also need to take action. And the, so we have done so, right? But the great rain coming out of the sea, the rain that is falling now that Mary is interpreting to being the skies weeping for Theoden and Eowyn, this is the proof of the wind that is driving forth the dark clouds of Mordor. And moreover, we don't even have to look at this in just a, a metaphorical, pathetic fallacy kind of way, right? We can look at this very specifically. Yes, the rain is falling. It is grieving for Theoden. But it is also putting out the fires in Minas Tirith, right? It is also putting out the fires in the besieged city. It is... It is undoing some of the fell work of the enemies of Gondor at this point. So we get to see the good and the bad there in, in close succession. Imrahil, prince of Dol Amroth, rode up and drew rein before them. What burden do you bear, men of Rohan? Obviously, he's seeing the shift. He's seeing the, the, the funeral beers that are laid out here, right? He's, he's seeing this, this grim work that is being done. What burden do you bear? He's asking who has fallen here. Theoden King, they answered. And you'll note we don't get a single a single man of Rohan answering at this point. They answer in chorus, and you can almost hear like the the wailing lamentation that, that no single man of Rohan can get the words out. They're all kind of doing it together. Theoden King, he is dead, but Eomer King now rides in the battle. He is with the white crest in the wind. Have ever the women of the Rohirrim come to war in our need, says Prince uh, Prince Imrahil. Nay, one only, they answered. The lady Eowyn, is she sister of Eomer, and we knew naught of her writing until this hour, and greatly we rue it. Greatly we rue it. We definitely didn't know anything about it. No one, no one definitely knew that Dernhelm was writing with us in secret. Mm, maybe we did. Maybe that is why they rue it. Maybe it wasn't a lack of knowledge. Uh, a lack of specific knowledge, certainly, right? And when I say that the men of the, of the Rohirrim kind of protect Eowyn's secret there a little bit, they protect it, I would argue, so fully that they do not allow themselves to acknowledge it. They do not allow themselves to internalize the knowledge. Hey, has anyone ever seen this dude Dernhelm before? Anyone ever ridden with him? Anyone ever trained with him? Sparred with him? Seen him take a shower? That kind of thing? Anyone? anyone no? No? Okay, weird. Weird. Um, doesn't have a lineage. Hasn't mentioned his family. Hasn't mentioned where he comes from or his holdings or anything like that. Probably definitely not Eowyn though, right? That would be crazy. That would be madness or devilry. So Imrahil knows what is up and he dispatches aid for Eowyn who, again, no spoilers, is definitely going to recover, you guys. We're going to get some more great Eowyn in the chapters to come, maybe even in next week's reading, since I am making reasonable progress getting through my uh, getting through my slides tonight. Shane says, Mary, maybe Mary sees the rain as tragic because the black breath has already stripped him of hope in a hopeful moment. Interesting. Possibly. Possibly. I'm not terribly inclined... I must, and this is my like immediate emotional response. So, so this is less an analytical response, and this is more me as as a fan of Mary. Right, I'm less inclined to see here his grief and his hopelessness coming from the influence of the Witch King of Angmar. Right, I don't necessarily think that the the effect of the Nazgul in that moment, though I was absolutely dismissive of Mary's courage last week. Right, I, I kind of played off as a almost joke Mary kind of creeping around slowly moving right we get that beat about it, the the slow roused courage of hobbits right but now it's burning and now he's taking action and he will not allow Eowyn so bright and fair to die here on this godforsaken field 
And I was talking about him kind of skulking around, sneaking around, quietly crawling around behind the Witch King of Angmar. But of course, taking any action against the Witch King of Angmar in the full manifestation of his power, the Witch King uncloaked as Aragorn and Gandalf and Saruman before them, before them have all been uncloaked. Galadriel too, arguably, when she's talking with Frodo, you know, they have been uncloaked too. Taking any action against the Witch King of Angmar is stupendous. It is an act of incomprehensible courage. I'm less inclined to read, therefore, Mary's grief as a consequence of the Black Rider, and more to read it as genuine grief. I, I, I'm perfectly content to say that the negative influence of, of the Witch King of Angmar fades and falters after his death. I think it probably passes pretty quickly, but I'm not sure right now if I can quote chapter and verse, if I can quote textual evidence that that is the case, but yeah, yeah, good. Uh, let me see here. Corporeal saying, did we ever mention that Durnhelm translates its secret helmet? Yes, we definitely did. Yes, yes, because it's so good, right? It's so good. Anyway, let's keep pushing on because we have to get to, well, you guys, here it is. Here it is. The moment of greatest eucatastrophe in all of the Lord of the Rings, the moment of greatest eucatastrophe in everything that Tolkien ever wrote. I dare say the greatest moment of eucatastrophe in fiction, the coming of the Corsairs. It was even as the day thus began to turn against Gondor, and their hope wavered that a new cry went up in the city, it being then mid-morning and a great wind blowing and the rain flying north and the sun shining. In that clear air, watchmen on the hills saw afar a new sight of fear, and their last hope left them. For Anduin, from the bend at the Harlon, so flowed that from the city men could look down at lengthwise for some leagues, and the far-sighted could see any ships that approached. And looking thither, they cried in dismay, for black against the glittering stream they beheld a fleet borne up on the wind, dromans, and ships of great draught with many oars and with black sails belying in the breeze. The Corsairs of Umber, men shouted, the Corsairs of Umber, look, the Corsairs of Umber are coming, so Belphalas is taken, and the Athir and Lebanon is gone, the Corsairs are upon us, it is the last stroke of doom. And some without order, for none could be found to command them in the city, ran to the bells and told the alarm, and some blew the trumpets sounding the retreat, back to the walls, they cried, back to the walls, come back to the city before all are overwhelmed, but the wind that sped the ships blew all their clamor away, they were here him indeed had no need of news or alarm. All too well they could see for themselves the black sails, for Aomer was now scarcely a mile from the Harland, and a great press of his first foes was between him and the haven there, while new foes came swirling behind, cutting him off from the prince. Now he looked to the river, and hope died in his heart, and the wind that he had blessed he now called accursed. But the hosts of Mordor were enheartened, and filled with a new lust and fury they came yelling to the onset. Stern now was Aomer's mood and his mind clear again. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that would come thither, for he thought to make a great shield wall at the last and stand and fight there on foot till all fell and do deeds of song on the fields of Pelennor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. So he rode to a green hillock and there set his banner and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Out of doubt, out of dark to the day's rising, I came singing in the sun's sword unsheathing, to hope's end I rode and to heart's breaking, now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. So the wind is blowing. It has driven up the rain off the sea that has quenched the fires in Minas Tirith that has so saddened Mary in this moment of grief. But now the wind has continued. This, this howling wind from the south has driven the rain clouds still further north and the sun is now shining and the men of Minas Tirith look south and think, crap. The battle on the Pelennor is not going great, right? 
It was even as the day thus began to turn against Gondor and their hope wavered. So even as they are stricken in this moment with the fear of defeat, the possibility that they might lose the Pelennor, the possibility at the very least that they are once more going to be besieged and that the men of Rohan will fall. And if that happens, by the way, there is now no hope for Minas Tirith whatsoever. They are not now holding out, holding out against the hope of coming allies. They are just done. It is, well, to borrow Galadriel's phrase, I suppose, they are fighting the long defeat. So even as their hope wavers, the watchmen of Minas Tirith look south along the length of the Anduin and they see the ships of the Corsairs coming. The ships of the Corsairs that have been ravaging the southern coastline, that have been preventing men from coming up to the weapon take in the first place. You'll remember that's why when Pippin looks out and sees the men riding up to Minas Tirith, he sees so few, though of course Imrahil is worth... What do we think? 10, 20, 50, like a whole company of regular soldiers, Prince Imrahil. And I love here too, the, cutting him off from the prince as we're describing the uh, the terrible situation in which Aomer finds himself. The Corsairs of Umber. Look, the Corsairs of Umber are coming. So Belfalas is taken and the Athir and Lebanon is gone. The Corsairs are upon us. It is the last stroke of doom. And there is now no one left to command in the city. No one is giving orders in the city. So some take it upon themselves to sound the alarm and to, to blow great horns, drawing everyone back in beyond the, the roof of the great gate at this point, probably up to the, the second terrace, right? The second level of, of Minas Tirith so that they can place some kind of defense here against an oncoming foe that can easily, trivially overrun them. Stern now was Aomer's mood and his mind clear again. He is now no longer Fey. He is now no longer seeking death. He is no longer caught up in that grief that he was. He's moved through that. He's moved past that to something darker, to something stonier, to certainly something less fierce. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that could come thither, for he thought to make a great shield wall at the last and stand and fight there on foot till all fell and do deeds of song in the fields of Pelennor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. We're going to dismount. The men of Rohan are going to leave their horses and set up a shield wall. They're going to set up a barricade. This is not how they fight. Like, even if things were going great, this would not be sound tactical thinking from Aomer. He is not trying to win the fight. He's just trying to draw a line, and he will hold that line for as long as he can, even though no man shall remember him, no songs shall be sung. He is now convinced that there is no future for the men of the West. There is no future for Middle-earth at that point. So he rode to a green hillock, and there sat his banner, and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. And I've said over the course of the last couple of sessions, I suppose, that I keep finding new favorite pieces of Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Saxon inspired poetry in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And this is absolutely my favorite. This is for me, hands down, the best piece of Anglo-Saxon poetry that we get. Out of doubt, out of dark to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing, to hope's end I rode and to hearts breaking, now for wrath, now for ruin and a red nightfall. Out of doubt, out of dark to the day's rising. I rode out of the darkness as Theoden King rode before me and the light came once more. I rode out of doubt and out of fear and out of darkness. I rode, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing, right? We're getting that brilliant Anglo-Saxon alliteration there. I was joyous in the battle. It wasn't like a good joy necessarily. It's not maybe how I'd want to feel every day, but yes, this was glory. This was Rohan. This was... This was a battle worthy of men of my sort and my type. To hope's end I rode, and to heart's breaking. Recognizing not just now that hope has completely departed, right? Well, remember, this is going to be super relevant over the course of the next couple of chapters. In fact, despair is when all hope has left you. When you know the outcome to a certainty, that is Gandalf's definition of despair. 
To hope's end I rode, and to heart's breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. Mirroring there Theoden's words, of course. A sore day, a red day, ere the sun rises, right? That was his, his call to arms, his great heroic call to arms. And what we're getting from Aomer here is not... Well, I suppose literally it is a call to arms, but it's not the same kind of call at all. He's not summoning his Eored to ride forth and to bring victory. He's not even, not even pretending that some might survive. No. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. Oh, uh, Corporeal is giving us a history here of, uh, of Corsairs. Technically speaking, Corporeal writes, Corsairs were privateers. They sailed under the authorization of a government, mainly France, so were able to claim some legitimacy and hence were more respected and romanticized than pirates who were acting purely in their own account. Yeah, the history of privateers is absolutely fascinating. Basically sanctioning private citizens to act as quasi-authorized pirates, right? The thing about privateers is that you are not sending forth naval forces, so you get you get military might, but you don't get the same kind of accountability. There is associated with the history of privateers, particularly if you're looking at the history of, of privateers in the, in the Caribbean during the golden age of piracy, right? Then you're seeing a kind of plausible deniability associated with the use of privateers. It's absolutely fascinating. But yes, the corsairs here used because... Because these are hired men. These are, these are men in the service of Sauron. These are not, you know, representatives of a nation. These are not representatives of uh, uh, any kind of, of political agenda here in Middle-earth. They are just mercenaries, right? Corsairs are the mercenaries of the sea. So let's move into this actual, I mean, this is it, you guys. This is it. These staves he spoke, yet he laughed as he said them. For once more lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. And then wonder took him, and a great joy. And he cast his sword up into the sunlight and sang as he caught it. And all eyes followed his gaze, and behold, upon the foremost ship a great standard broke, and the wind displayed it as she turned toward the harland. There flowered a white tree, and that was for Gondor. But seven stars were about it, and a high crown above it, the signs of Elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count. And the stars flamed in the sunlight, for they were wrought of gems by Arwen, daughter of Elrond. And the crown was bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. Thus came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Isildur's heir out of the paths of the dead, borne upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor, and the mirth of the Rohirrim was a torrent of laughter and a flashing of swords, and the joy and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and a ringing of bells, but the hosts of Mordor were seized with bewilderment, and a great wizardry it seemed to them that their own ships should be filled with their foes, and a black dread fell on them, knowing that the tides of fate had turned against them and their doom was at hand. East rode the knights of Dol Amroth, driving the enemy before them, troll men and variags and orcs that hated the sunlight. South strode Aomer, and the men fled before his face, and they were caught between the hammer and the anvil. For now men leapt from the ships to the keys of the Harland, and swept north like a storm. There came Legolas, and Gimli wielding his axe, and Halbarad with the standard, and Eladon and Elrahir with stars on their brow, and dour-handed Dúnedain, rangers of the north, leading a great valor of the folk of Lebanon and Lamadon and the fiefs of the south, and before all went Aragorn with the flame of the west, Anduril like a new fire kindled, Narsal reforged as deadly as of old, and upon his brow was the star of Elendil. And so at length Eomer and Aragorn met in the midst of the battle, and they leaned on their swords and looked at one another, and were glad. Thus we meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor lay between us, said Aragorn, 
Did I not say so at the Hornburg? So you spoke, said Aylmer, but hope oft deceives, and I knew not then you were a man foresighted, yet twice blessed as help unlooked for, and never was a meeting of France more joyful. And they clasped hand in hand. Nor indeed more timely, said Aylmer. You come none too soon, my friend. Much loss and sorrow has befallen us. Then let us avenge it, ere we speak of it, said Aragorn. And they rode back to battle together. The greatest power of the wind from the south is not blowing apart the clouds of the dawnless day. It is not casting that beam of light upon Theoden King as he rides forth at the head of the host of the Rohirrim. It is the bringing up of the ships from the south. Had that wind from the south not been summoned, then this fleet of Corsair ships could never have arrived in time. Aragorn would not have made it. The Rohirrim, at the very least, would have fallen. How long does, does the, this last stand of, of, of the men of Rohan have? Minutes? An hour, perhaps, like maybe an hour, but no more than that. And any delay at all would have been ruinous. At any delay, the host of Mordor vanquishing the Rohirrim could have settled in once more to a siege, and Aragorn's job would have been much more difficult, arguably impossible, right? Storming a siege encampment is no mean thing. We'll move through this in some order, and yes, you know what? Little little lump in the throat, little tear in the eye. I'm doing okay. How are you guys holding up here? It's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph's saying, is Aragorn actually just a cold reader, predicts a bunch of vague stuff, then takes credit when something lands? You know what? This is my favorite thing. This is my favorite thing. To, to, to drop the, the rhetorical scale so far in that moment, and to give us this moment of real Real friendship, right? Like real camaraderie. So at length, Aomer and Aragorn met in the midst of battle and they leaned on their swords and looked at one another and were glad. Finger guns. Hey, how you doing, Aomer? Thus we meet again, though all hosts of Mordor lay between us, said Aragorn. Did I not say so at the Hornburg? Did I not promise you? Wait, literally that in literally those words? So you spoke, said Aomer, but hope oft deceives. And I knew not then you were a man foresighted. Yeah, yeah, you did. You told me this was coming. Good job, good job, king. These staves he spoke, we're going to go right back to the beginning here because we have to pay attention to, uh, to Aomer in this moment before we get to the actual catastrophe itself. These staves he spoke, so this is the passage from the last slide, right? This is the, uh, the, the red nightfall. These staves he spoke, yet he laughed as he said them, for once more the lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. That paratactical structure, as we've been discussing over the course of the last few weeks, this is probably my favorite use of it in the entire book, actually. It's so powerful, so romantic, so tragic, beautifully tragic in this moment. For once more, lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. All that is Rohan is embodied now in Aomer, right? That is what the king is for. As it was once embodied in Theoden, now it is embodied in Aomer. For he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king. Rohan, too, is, as of now, still unscathed, and still young, and still has a king. None of those things will be true for much longer. But the... The fey fury of battle takes him once more, and lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. And this is where we get into really interesting terrain, because of course we've talked a lot about hope, and we've talked a lot about despair, all the way through the Lord of the Rings. Really, going back to The Hobbit too, and hope, as we framed previously, is 
That acknowledgement that you don't know how things are going to turn out. Hope is the possibility that things are not as black as they might seem right now. Despair is when you know for sure, right? When you know exactly how things are going to turn out or believe you know how things are going to turn out, that is when we give in to despair. That is when despair is, in fact, the, the rational response. Hope falters in the wake of that certain knowledge of one's imminent death. And Aomer is in a really interesting position here because... He believes that he knows beyond doubt the outcome of these events. He believes now that he is going to fall and all of his men will fall with him and they will be cleansed from the bloody pages of history, that no songs will be sung of the men of Rohan anymore. He believes this to be absolutely true. Hope has utterly deserted him at this point. But there is something on the other side of hope. There is something on the other side of despair. There is something that drives you to take action even in the face of... Not just overwhelming odds, not just, you know, a long shot hope of victory. We can, we can cling to that long shot hope of victory. That's why we're sending a hobbit into Mordor. That's the long shot. That's the Hail Mary right there. But this is defiance. He lifted up his sword to defy them. And defiance is weaponized hope. Defiance and hope are are so closely associated that I'm not even sure that within the pages of Tolkien I have managed to completely disentangle them. Defiance is continuing to act as though you have hope even when you don't. It is uh, an artificial light, I suppose, right? It is, it is a light of choice. That's a much better way of putting it, actually. It is a light of choice rather than a light of circumstance. Eomer here believes beyond all shadow of a doubt that he is about to die. He's wrong, of course, right? He's absolutely wrong. So <laughs> despair, as Danathor is going to tell us in the next page, uh, in the next chapter, rather, right? Despair. Hope is ignorance. That is Denethor's position when he's talking to Gandalf. Hope is ignorance. If you believe that you have a shot, it's only because you're not smart enough. It's only because you haven't looked far enough. It's only because you don't understand enough. And in this instance, despair is actually the product of ignorance. If Eomer knew what was coming on the ships, if he knew the moment of catastrophe that was about to, to charge onto the Pelennor and, well, it pains me to put it in such simple terms, such, such blunt terms, but save the day? then he would still have hope. He would still believe. He would still, he would still fight on. He would, he would preserve this opportunity. But he doesn't. His knowledge is imperfect, and so he despairs, but he despairs in defiance. And that, well, obviously, we've been contrasting Theoden and Denethor. We've actually been promising that we will contrast Theoden and Denethor, I suppose, more than we have actually been contrasting Theoden and Denethor. But it turns out that Eomer is absolutely in the mold of the line of kings of Rohan. He is Theoden's heir. He is king of the mark because he too will fight into defiance when hope falters. He will not succumb to despair in the way that Denethor is, as we speak, succumbing to despair. And then wonder took him and a great joy and he cast his sword up in the sunlight and sang as he caught it. He throws his sword in the air, so profound is his joy in this moment and sings as he catches it. And all eyes followed his, and his gaze excuse me, and behold upon the foremost ship a great standard broke and the wind displayed it as she turned toward the Harland. The wind catching even the standard. This, this eucatastrophic wind bringing not just light and not just the ships and not just hope, but the beacon of hope, the symbol of hope. And this is the payoff to the three beat, I suppose, right? Because you'll remember 
that we get Halbarad telling Aragorn that he's got the standard that Eowyn made for him. And Aragorn's like, okay, cool. You just hold on to that. Then we get to the Stone of Eric and Aragorn's like, Halbarad, now show them the standard. And lo, it was dark and no one could see anything. But now we get to see it in its glory. There flowered a white tree and that was for Gondor. But seven stars were about it and a high crown above it. The signs of Elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count. It would be one thing if these ships were sailing up the Anduin and unfurled the standard of Gondor. That would be one thing. Oh, great. The Corsairs have been defeated and the men who couldn't make it to Gondor to aid in the defense of Minas Tirith, they've made it. Okay, cool. We've got, we've got some more men. Maybe we've got a fighting chance. Let's do this thing. That would still be hopeful. That would still be a moment of eucatastrophe given that they are driven by this this supernatural wind, arguably supernatural wind. We're going to talk about that in just one second. Um, that would still be something, but it's not just the White Tree of Gondor. It's also the seven stars. Seven stars were about it and a high crown above it, the signs of Elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count. This is the return of the king. The king has come back to Minas Tirith and has come back in full force. Thus came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Isildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor. Look how elevated and mythic this language is. It's just fantastic. And the mirth of the Rohirrim was a torrent of laughter and a flashing of swords, and the joy of, and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and a ringing of bells. But the host of Mordor were seized with, with bewilderment and a great wizardry, it seemed to them, that their own ships should be filled with their foes. Remember just a moment ago, right? They saw the ships coming up the river, and the, the host of Mordor start fighting even more fiercely, assured that now new allies are coming to help them in their final, final conquest of Minas Tirith. But now, what the hell? These are our ships, and they've got good guys on them? No one told me that this was possible. I, I definitely read the entire pamphlet, So You're Going to War in Gondor. I definitely read that thing cover to cover. And no one said anything about Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Isildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor. No one mentioned that. That is baffling. I quit, actually. I'm just going to go home to, well, my swamp, my desert in Mordor. I, yeah, they're going to flee. They're going to be pursued. Or some of them, I suppose, are going to flee. Certainly not all of them. East rode the knights of Dol Amroth, driving the enemy before them, trollmen and variogs and orcs that hated the sunlight. South strode Eomer, and the men fled before his face, and they were caught between the hammer and the anvil. So the the men of, of Dol Amroth, under the, the leadership of Prince Imrahil, and the men of the Rohirrim, under the leadership of Eomer King, they are now riding for the dock. They're riding for the keys here, and they're driving the orcs before them, and the orcs are fleeing, and they are, well, not just the orcs, but, but all the, the servants of Sauron, and they are fleeing, and they are finding themselves crushed against the anvil of this new arrival of Aragorn and his troops. For now men leapt from the ships to the keys of Harland and swept north like a storm. There came Legolas and Gimli wielding his axe. Do you notice how, again, elevated the language is here? There came Legolas. Not there came an elf clad in green, right? No. Legolas, the mythic figure Legolas. Hey, y'all heard of Legolas? Because that's him right over there. This is the kind of language that you would use if you were describing like, you know, then came Theseus and Heracles, right? There, there came Legolas and Gimli wielding his axe and Halbarad with the standard and Eladan and Elrond here, the sons of uh, Elrond, of course, from Rivendell, with stars on their brow and the dour-handed Dunedain, rangers of the north, leading a great valor of the folk of Lebanon and Lamadon and the fiefs of the south. They have taken up the men of Gondor to their cause. They are now riding or sailing north with the men of Gondor who couldn't come with Prince Imrahil in the first place. Uh, but before all went Aragorn with the flame of the west, Underil like a new fire kindled, Narsil reforged as dead of old, and upon his brow was the star of Elendil. Aragorn, leading from the front, because as previously mentioned, that is what kings do. 
That is what Theoden did. That is what Eomer did. That is not what Denethor did. Aragorn is in the very front line of the conflict here, leading with that great description. Before all went Aragorn with the flame of the West, Underil like a new fire kindled, Narso reforged as deadly of old. I love that opposition of the new name and the old, and the sword is somehow the product of both. The sword is, is both ancient and modern. It is, it is fierce and new forged, but it is also the same blade that felled Sauron back at the, the, the Battle of the Last Alliance, right? The last Battle of the Last Alliance. And upon his brow was the Star of Elendil. The Star of Elendil was originally, you know, represented pretty well in the movie, actually, right? Just the little star there right on his brow with the little circlet of wire coming, coming around behind it. The Star of Elendil was an artifact originally crafted uh, way back in the days of Numenor for the daughter of the king Tar Elendil Silmarion. It was passed down the line of inheritance through the, the, the peak of Numenorean culture, I suppose, all the way down to Elendil himself, who wore it when they sailed forth from the sinking of Numenor to Middle-earth. It then was passed down to his son Isildur, but was lost when Isildur fell at the Battle of the Gladden Field. In fact, if you go and read the... Um, it's, uh, my mind has gone blank. What is that story called in Unfinished Tales? The battle? It's not the Battle of the Gladden Fields, the tragedy of the Gladden Fields? I forget. But when you go and read that account, in fact, when Isildur puts on the ring to turn invisible so that he can flee from the orcs, the star is still shining. The star will not be muted, so he has to cover it with his, with his hood. So that star of Elendil is lost, or brackets, thought lost, more on that in a moment. A second star of Elendil was made in Rivendell for Isildur's son and passed down through the line of the kings of Gondor, uh, through the line of the kings of Arnor, excuse me, in the north, until Arnor falls, at which point it is quietly taken back to Rivendell and put in a little velvet case and just tucked away and just against the, the, the future return of the king, as it were. According to Unfinished Tales, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn returns to Orthanc to restore it and discovers in Saruman's personal cache two great artifacts. He finds a chain that is the narrative voice of Unfinished Tales assures us, or the narrative voice of that particular part of the Unfinished Tales assures us. He finds the chain that bore the ring around the neck of Isildur himself, and he also finds the original Star of Elendil, the, the Eldamar. It's pretty great. And obviously the, the symbology of, of uh, stars and kings and gems on brows, right? What's really interesting is that I believe this was added pretty much in a publication draft, uh, the publication draft for this part of the book. I believe that prior to pretty much the last draft that Tolkien wrote of this part of the book, he was just wearing a crown. He just came out with a crown on. And it was only at the very last moment before publication that Tolkien revised it to the star of Elendil, which is... I mean, so much more mythic, so much more powerful, so much more fantastic. And then, as we say, Eomer and Aragorn meeting in the midst of battle. Hey, you! Told you. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Didn't know you were prophetic. Didn't know you had the foresight. But hey. Yet twice blessed is help unlooked for, and never was a meeting of friends more joyful, nor indeed more timely. You came none too soon, my friend. Much loss and sorrow has befallen us. Then let us avenge it, ere we speak of it. If we can't save the Palinor, we can avenge it. Um... As I say, that, that recognition that Aragorn's arrival isn't just fortunate and isn't just timely, but is actually eucatastrophic, right? The, the, the wind is a necessary part. And, and I've seen some people kind of debating this and being a little unsure about this too, because, okay, 
Would this battle have gone differently if the wind from the south hadn't whistled up and blown away the clouds and, and, and cast aside the darkness and allowed the sun to shine? Well, yes, it would have gone differently, right? The men of Rohan and the men of Gondor would have been more dispirited and the, the forces of Sauron would have been more empowered by the darkness. That's absolutely true. You'll note here that we get the, uh, the, the orcs fleeing because they're, they're fearful of the sun. This is still, these are not the fighting Orochai from, or, uh, from Orthanc. These are just orcs of, of Barad-dûr. So they are still fearful of the sun and fought more powerfully, more potent beneath the darkness. <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting to phrase this very carefully, which is why I'm hesitating so much. The battle may conceivably have gone in broad strokes about the same if the wind had never occurred, if the wind had never whistled up out of the south. But Aragorn would not have arrived in time. This eucatastrophic stroke, the final eucatastrophic stroke, not the symbolic eucatastrophic stroke that we associate with Theoden riding out across the plain, but this actual moment of salvation could not have happened without that specific wind. Um, let's take a look here. Um, yes, Varig of Khan observing the wind blew the ships upriver. Yes, precisely. Um, Wilhelm Scream says, this wouldn't have worked, not without something for them. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I thought you were making a different point than the point you were making, Wilhelm, and I'm not sure of the point that you are making, but yes. Um, Good, good. Okay. Uh, our firemen are saying the Star of Elendil would have been the token of the true, uh, the true line of the kings and queens of Numenor since later law gives queens inheritability. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Good. Okay. Um, I wanted to address a question that I got from listener Aya, who says, I've seen some students of Tolkien claim that Manwe the Vala is responsible for the wind that blows away the clouds at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, but I'm confused. Why is it a southern wind and not a wind from the west? And I've got to tell you, Aya, in that question, you zagged on me. I, I wasn't sure quite where you were going there because I assumed that the uh, attribution of the wind from the south to Manwe is, is controversial in as much as we've never specifically placed the intrusion of that eucatastrophic force, that, that, that intrusive grace, that intercessory grace at the feet of a single individual. And yet Tolkien scholars are pretty damn sure that Manwe himself had something to do with the wind from the south. But you zagged on me because you asked and said, if that's the case, why is it a wind from the south? and not a wind from the West? And that's kind of a good question, right? Why is it a wind from the South? Trivially, because we needed to blow ships north, is why, right? That's the actual answer, is because of the path of the Anduin, is why. But you're absolutely right, because we're not connecting this wind directly, uh, symbolically, metaphorically, geographically, with Valinor and the West. We are connecting it with something else. We are connecting it with the sea, the wind from the sea has whistled up. Thus came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Zildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor. He is following in his ancestors' footsteps. He is coming to Middle-earth from the sea, buoyed by a wind in exactly the same way as Elendil and Isildur did back in the day. That, I think, uh, let me gloss Manwe, actually. Uh, Manwe, which is uh, the, the Quenyan translation means uh, blessed one, is the leader of the Ainur. He is the most powerful of all of the Valar, excluding Melkor, right? Melkor is kind of taken off of that list. Uh, he is the most powerful of the Aratar, right? The, the, eight, uh, the eight senior, uh, the eight senior uh, Valar who come into Middle-earth. He is basically the, uh, the king of the Valar. He is, is recognized as probably the most powerful force ever to inhabit uh, Arda, not to inhabit Middle-earth, but ever to inhabit Arda, except for Melkor himself, who is, is Melkor is the, for those of you coming in very late, I suppose, Melkor is the 
oh boy, I want to be really careful about this because I don't want to draw unnecessary or, or trite biblical references or allusions here. Uh, Melkor is the bad seed. Melkor is is the biggest bad of all the big bads. Melkor becomes Morgoth, who who is responsible for basically all evil and tyranny in, in the realm of Middle-earth. So the thing about Manwe is that he commands the air. He is lord of air. He commands the wind, which is why we generally credit Manwe with this, this southern wind from the sea. Um, I'm... I'm happy with it, right? Like, I can't, I can't, I can't look at the text and say, no, it is not Manwe. Don't be ridiculous. But I'm also perfectly happy to look at the text and say, it doesn't matter. I don't need, and I don't think that Tolkien felt a need, to credit this intercessory grace to a particular individual within the fictional frame. And one of the things that we want to do, because Tolkien's Legendarium is so sophisticated, because it is so complex, because it is populated with these fantastic characters, with with hundreds and probably thousands of these fantastic characters, because everything is worked out in so much fine detail, it is more tempting with regard to Tolkien than to any other author that you care to mention to kind of fit every event into his logistical schema, right? This wind whistles up. Well, where does the wind come from? Who causes the wind? Where, where, what is its source? What is its origin? This wind from the sea, this wind from the west via the south, if you like. And I don't think that we need to do that. Tolkien's belief in intercessory grace, A, allows us, if we are inclined toward this kind of theological construction, to completely forget about the Valor, to completely forget about Valinor, and just to credit this to God, just to credit this to Ero Iluvatar, just to credit this to, you know, whatever kind of, of creator being sits behind the scenes here. And I'm kind of qualifying that only because, of course, the only perspective we get on God is Iluvatar. And that is a uniquely Elvish perspective, right? We don't get real kind of developed theology from uh, from uh, from men or dwarves or... God, the developed theology of dwarves would be fantastic, right? But we don't get that kind of developed theology from the other races of Middle-earth. So when I hesitate to say... When, when I use a word like creator or god rather than the named Eru Iluvatar, it is only because we don't get that completely completely definitive or comprehensive kind of take on the theologies of Middle-earth. We get one. We get one right at the beginning of the Silmarillion, and that's pretty much your lot. I don't think that we have to credit Manwe specifically with this intrusion, but I also have no problem crediting Manwe specifically with this intrusion. If that sits comfortably for you in your logical understanding of who is able to take action within the frame of Middle-earth, great. And it's tempting, too, of course, to think back to, you know, the, the westerly wind sung off by the dwarves. Oh, also, there was another little note of, uh, note of confusion here. Uh, why is it a southern wind and not a wind from the west? There's a possible ambiguous, you know, idea there. Uh, we name winds because, <laughs> because we are concerned with weather, right? We name winds in the direction that they are coming from, not the direction that they are blowing to. Thus, a southern wind is a wind that is blowing from the south to the north. The westerly wind of Valinor is blowing from the west to the east. The east wind of Mordor, of which Gimli will not speak, if you recall when Aragorn and Legolas are composing their spontaneous uh, ode to Boromir at Parth Galen, and, and Gimli says, you've left the east wind for me, but I will not speak of it, right? nor would it be appropriate, right? Because the east wind blows from Mordor out west, because we're mostly concerned with the kind of air that the wind is bringing, thus a southerly wind is going to bring gentler, more more temperate uh, uh, weather and, and climate for us, whereas a northerly wind is going to bring colder weather and, and harsher rain, at least in the northern hemisphere, I suppose. You can definitely flip that and invert it. I guess west and east still hold pretty much constant if you're in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. Anyway, that's a weird tangent to go on. So, 
Is Manwe responsible for the wind? Possibly. I don't think that it matters. I don't think that it matters. I think that if Tolkien had wanted to be intentional in this space and could have crafted a a sustainable and complete and rigorous mechanism by which he could explore that idea within the pages of The Lord of the Rings, then he would have done so. I think leaving it ambiguous does nothing at all to diminish its importance, to diminish the underlying idea. And the underlying idea, for those of you who are coming in a little late to there and back again and perhaps didn't hear me talk about this all the way back in in the pages of The Hobbit, the underlying idea of catastrophe is that the universe itself is fundamentally good. The crack of despair, that, that blackness that opens within us at that moment when all seems lost is a means for the light to get in. The universe is fundamentally good, is fundamentally just, either because it is naturally good and naturally just, if you're taking a kind of uh, modernist read on Tolkien, or if you are Tolkien, if you are, you know, uh, more theologically inspired, because God is good and just. And these opportunities, which are then enacted by action itself, right? Again, this is an opportunity. If Aragorn hadn't taken the paths of the dead, if Theoden hadn't ridden forth from Edoras, if, 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 I don't know, no one had been there at, at, at the Pelennor Fields to stop the host of Mordor, if Faramir hadn't been ranging in Ithilien and then trying to protect Kyrandros and trying to protect Osgiliath, if the men of Gondor had not stood stalwart for a thousand years, then the wind from the south would have accomplished precisely nothing. It would have done no good whatsoever. Eucatastrophe does not save the day. This is not deus ex machina. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for great heroism, for, for great action. Yeah. Okay, let's, um, oh my gosh, it is 10 after 10 here in Oklahoma City. And uh, we still have two more slides to get through before we even get to the Pyre of Denethor. So, hey, let's cast aside any hope of getting to the Pyre of Denethor tonight, which actually works out really well because then the framing at the end of this book was getting a little a little weird. So we'll do the Pyre of Denethor and the Houses of Healing next week. How does that sound? Let's move into the end of the battle. This was always going to be a long session, you guys. Hard fighting and long labor they had still, for the Southrons were bold men and grim and fierce in despair, and the Easterlings were strong and war-hardened and asked for no quarter. And so in this place and that, by burned homestead or barn, upon hillock or mound, under wall or on field, still they gathered and rallied and fought until the day wore away. Then the sun went at last behind Mindoluin and filled all the sky with a great burning, so that the hills and the mountains were dyed as with blood. Fire glowed in the river, and the the grass of the Pelennor lay red in the nightfall. And in that hour the great battle of the field of Gondor was over, and not one living foe was left within the circuit of the Ramus. All were slain save those who fled to die or to drown in the red foam of the river. Few ever came eastward to Morgul or Mordor, and to the land of the Haradrim came only a tale from far off, a rumor of the wrath and terror of Gondor. Aragorn and Eomer and Imrahil rode back toward the gate of the city, and they were now weary beyond joy or sorrow. These three were unscathed, for such was their fortune and the skill and might of their arms, and few indeed had dared to abide them or look on their faces in the hour of their wrath. But many others were hurt or maimed or dead upon the field. The axes hewed furlong as he fought alone and unhorsed, and both Duelin of Morthond and his brother were trampled to death when they assailed the Mumakil, leading their bowmen close to shoot at the eyes of the monsters. Neither Herluin the Fair would return to Pinnathgallan, nor Grimbold to Grimslade, nor Halbarad to the Northland's dour-handed ranger. No few had fallen, renowned or nameless, captain or soldier, for it was a great battle and the full count of it no tale has told. And so the battle is over, is over, and it is only reading it this time. It was only reading it earlier this week, just a couple of days ago, 
then I realized a really nice, playful irony when Aomer and Aragorn are reunited right after the, uh, the arrival of the Corsair ships. And Aragorn says, hey, look, here we are. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? And Aomer says, yeah, but I didn't know you then to be a man foresighted. Aomer, also apparently a man foresighted. The Red Nightfall has come. This is the Red Nightfall that he proclaimed as he was rallying his troops for their final, I was going to say heroic, but you know what? I'm not sure heroism even enters into it. Their final futile stand. He casts forward to the Red Nightfall, and thus the Red Nightfall has come, but not the Red Nightfall that he expected. This is a Red Nightfall of victory, but not, crucially, a victory without cost. Then the sun went down, uh, went at last behind Mindoluin. Mindoluin, that hill, the mountain that rises behind Minas Tirith, right? The, the, uh, the, the mountain that rises kind of uh, from which Minas Tirith is, is constructed, if you like. And the sun went at last behind Mindoluin and filled all the sky with a great burning, so that the hills and the mountains were dyed as with blood. Fire glowed in the river, and the grass of the Pelennor lay red in the nightfall. And in that hour, the great battle of the field of Gondor was over, and not one living foe was left within the circuit of the Ramas. So all of the Pelennor field now has been cleared, has been, has been, has been ravaged by the men of Gondor and, and the men of Arathorn, son of Aragorn, uh, of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, excuse me, and, and the men of the Rohirrim too. All of the foes have been slain, save those who have fled. All were slain, save those who fled to die or to drown in the red foam of the river. Few ever came eastward to Morgul or Mordor. Some did. Some made it as far as Minas Morgul. Some made it all the way back into Mordor proper and to the land of the Haradrim, to the eastern border of Mordor, right? Only a tale from far off, a rumor of the wrath and terror of Gondor. No one makes it home, only the story and even then only a vague rumor. So Aragorn and Eomer and Imrahil ride back to the gate, the, the ruined gate, the, the great gate of Minas Tirith here. We're now weary beyond joy or sorrow. These three were unscathed, for such was their fortune and the skill and might of their arms, crediting both luck, that was their fortune, but also their skill. The skill and might of their arms there, not referring to their actual arms or kind of symbolically, representatively to their arms, but their arms, their weaponry, right? Such is their skill in combat that they emerge unscathed. And few indeed had dared to abide them or look on their faces in the hour of their wrath. They were fierce on the field of battle. But many others were hurt or maimed or dead upon the field. And then we get this brilliant transition into a kind of medieval, kind of Anglo-Saxon kind of honor roll of the dead, right? These are characters with, with one exception that we don't really know at all. The axes hewed forlong as he fought alone and unhorsed. And both du- Duelin of, of Morthond and his brother were trampled to death when they assailed the Mumikil. The Mumikil, the, uh, the elephants, of course, the, the gigantic elephants uh, here. Leading their bowmen close to shoot in the eyes of the monsters. Neither Hurluin the fair would return to Pinneth Galen, nor Grimbold to Grimslade, nor Halbarad to the Northlands, dour-handed ranger. Pour one out for Halbarad, you guys, the, the standard bearer of, of Aragorn's men, the, the standard bearer of the Dúnedain, come back to the king. He doesn't make it through the battle, sadly, and we're going to get a few more of that, a few more of those, uh, those fallen men in just a moment as we conclude the chapter. No few had fallen, renowned or nameless, captain or soldier. Lots of people died of every conceivable rank, of every conceivable position, renowned or nameless, famous or not, captain or soldier, like leader or not, for it was a great battle and the full count of it, no tale has told. We still don't know here in the frame of this. This is another kind of pivot back to the idea of the Lord of the Rings as a constructed text, even within the world of the Lord of the Rings. Who wrote this part? Maybe Frodo, possibly Frodo, maybe Bilbo, maybe Sam, who can say for sure? Though it feels more like Bilbo, though, mm, yeah, I don't know. This could be this could be Frodo in a Bilboan mode, I suppose. 
but we will get no tale of it. No, no tale has been told of the full battle. Yes, Halbrad, uh, Variag of Khan pointing out, Halbrad foretold his death at the Pods of the Dead. Yes, he absolutely did. And Joseph saying, Grimbold, say it isn't so. Grimbold of Grimslade is fantastic. What a brilliant name, right? That, ah, it, is, it, is, it is perilously close to being a really good D&D name, by which I mean it is a little more cartoonish than the kinds of names that we get, but I love it. I love it so much. Forlong, the axe is hewed Forlong as he fought alone and unhorsed. Duelin of Morthond and his brother were trampled to death as they lead their bowmen closer to assault the Mumakil. Neither Hirluin the Fair would return to Pinneth Gelen, uh, nor Grimble to Grimslade, nor Halberad to the Northlands. Dour-handed ranger. So many have fallen. The cost has been so high. So high, in fact, that we get the song. So long afterward, a maker in Rohan said in his song of the mounds of Mundberg, We heard of the horns in the hills ringing, the swords shining in the south kingdom. Steeds went striding to the stoning land as wind in the morning. War was kindled. There Theoden fell, Thangling mighty, to his golden halls and green pastures in the northern fields never returning. High lord of the host, Harding and Guthlaf, Denhere and Dorwene, Doughty Grimbold, Herefara and Herobrand, Horn and Fastred, fought and fell there in a far country. In the mounds of Munberg under mould they lie, with their league fellows, lords of Gondor. Neither Herluin the fair to the hills by the sea, nor Forlong the old to the flowering vales, ever to Arnach to his own country returned in triumph, nor the tall bowmen, Derefin and Duelin, and their dark waters, mirrors of Morthond under mountain shadows, death in the morning and at day's ending, lords took and lowly. Long now they sleep under grass in Gondor by the great river, grey now as tears, gleaming silver, Red then it rolled, roaring water. Foam died with blood flamed at sunset, as beacons mountains burned at evening. Red fell the dew in Ramas Echor. So we get, in classic Tolkienian fashion, right? We've had this a few times. Normally it goes the other way. Normally the song is sung first, and then we get the prose cap to kind of describe what has happened. You remember Aragorn singing songs and then explaining exactly what the song that he just sang was about. Here we get the inverse of that. We get the prose account first, giving us the names of some of these fallen men. And then we get some more details. Um, Guthlaf, there we see, as I mentioned last time, Guthlaf, battle survivor, battle leaver, Sadly, not making it all the way through. Herefara uh, and Herobrand, Horn and Fastred, fought and fell there in a far country in the mounds of Mundberg under Mold. They la- Mundberg, of course, the Rohiric word here, so we're not using uh, we're not using Minas Tirith. We're using Mundberg and Stoning Land and all of these wonderful things. Steeds went striding to the Stoning Land as wind in the morning. War was kindled. There Theoden fell, Thangling mighty, to the golden halls and green pastures in the northern fields, never returning. High Lord of the Host. This lamentation is enormously powerful, enormously stirring, because we draw back that that scale and that expanse of conflict, right? So many men have ridden into battle and so many men have died here that it's almost implausible. What is it? That, that one person dead is a tragedy, 50 people dead is a statistic, right? We cannot allow the reader here to be left in the statistical consequence of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Instead, we personalize it and we tell the stories, we sing the songs of those men who have fallen. Despite what Aomer feared, songs will be sung by the men of Rohan in the future. Songs will be sung of the great deeds that were done here within the embrace of the Ramas Echor upon the Pelennor Fields themselves. This is heartbreaking and what a brilliant way of of taking a moment out of the action i suppose to commemorate those who have fallen this 
it does speak very powerfully, of course, to Tolkien's response. Uh, uh, Tolkien's response. Um, oh, our Faramir is pointing out, long afterward means Bilbo didn't record the Song of Rohan since he wasn't in Middle-earth for much longer. Yes, that's an absolutely excellent point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, good. Oh, and uh, Martin is pointing out, here we see dynamic creativity, League Fellows to alliterate with Lords of Gondor. Yes, League Fellows is great. And Nikki was saying, can we say alliteration? We can say alliteration. We can... We can celebrate it. Gray now as in gray now as tears, gleaming silver, red then it rolled, roaring water, foam dyed with blood, flamed at sunset. This is perfect Anglo-Saxon poetic structure, and it's just, yeah, just just gorgeous. All right. It is 20 after 10 here in Oklahoma City. You know what? Let's do one more slide. Let, let's make a start on chapter seven, the Pyre of Denethor. What do you say, you guys? We'll do one more slide tonight and then we will wrap it up. My, my, it must be the lump in my throat. It must be the, the elf dust in the air that is just uh, making me a little more uh, ragged in the voice than I usually am at this point on a Thursday evening. But nonetheless, we shall push on. When the dark shadow at the gate withdrew, Gandalf still sat motionless. But Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him, and he stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blow in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. But now suddenly his errand returned to his memory, and he ran forward. At that moment Gandalf stirred and spoke to Shadowfax and was about to ride through the gate. Gandalf! Gandalf! cried Pippin, and Shadowfax halted. What are you doing here? said Gandalf. Is it not a law in the city that those who wear the black and silver must stay in the citadel unless their lord gives them leave? He has, said Pippin. He sent me away, but I am frightened. Something terrible may happen up there. The Lord is out of his mind, I think. I'm afraid he will kill himself and kill Faramir too. Can't you do something? Gandalf looked through the gaping gate, and already on the fields he heard the gathering sound of battle. He clenched his hand. I must go, he said. The Black Rider is abroad, and he will yet bring ruin on us. I have no time. But Faramir, cried Pippin, he is not dead, and they will burn him alive if someone does not stop them. Burn him alive, said Gandalf. What is this tale? Be quick! Denethor has gone to the tomb, said Pippin, and he has taken Faramir, and he says we are all to burn, and he will not wait, and they are to make a pyre and burn him on it, and Faramir as well, and he has sent men to fetch wood and oil, and I have told Baragon, but I am afraid he won't dare to leave his post. He is on guard, and what can he do anyway? So Pippin poured out his tail, reaching up and touching Gandalf's knee with trembling hands. Can't you save Faramir? Maybe I can, said Gandalf, but if I do, then others will die, I fear. Well, I must come, since no other help can reach him. But evil and sorrow will come of this. Even in the heart of our stronghold, the enemy has power to strike us. For his will it is that is at work. Gandalf, as is so often the case, knowing exactly what is up. It is, in fact, it turns out, the will of the enemy that is at work here in the citadel of Minas Tirith. I'm heartbroken by Pippin in this moment. I am so moved by his... Hobbity courage, honestly. I'm so moved by his devotion to duty and, crucially, to his understanding of what is right. Let's pay close attention to what is happening here, right? Gandalf is getting ready to ride out through the gate. The, the Witch King of Angmar has retreated. They've had their standoff. Then we get the blowing of the horns. We get the crowing of the cock. The riders of Rohan are coming. And the Witch King of Nazgul is like, cool, going to go deal with that. BRB. And Gandalf is about to ride out after him. He's motionless. Uh, when the dark shadow at the gate withdrew, Gandalf still sat motionless, but Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him, so he feels this joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. At that moment, Gandalf stirred and spoke to Shadowfax and was about to ride through the gate. He's about to go out onto the field. He is going to join the fray because he is the only one who even has a hope of standing up to the Witch King of Angmar, or at least so he believes. Pippin's intercession here the vehicle of eucatastrophe, right? The, the tool of eucatastrophe, if you like. Pippin is calling Gandalf back 
so that Gandalf can achieve, well, if not maybe a greater good, a different good. And Gandalf's choice here is, is fascinating to me because it does two things. Coming off the back of the end of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and that roll call of the honored dead that we get and the purpose of that roll call to instantiate our grief in the specific people who have fallen, right? We're not allowed to, to see this as a nameless host that has fallen. We have to consider the individual named people. And so Gandalf here too, against the possible fate of hundreds of thousands out there on the field and the ultimate fate of Minas Tirith, he can't turn his back on one person that he can actually help. He is obliged to do it. I must come, he says, since no other help can reach him, but evil and sorrow will come of this. Well, yes, evil and sorrow will come of this, but Gandalf is perhaps not as aforesighted as Aragorn is. Grief and sorrow will indeed come of this, but it will be a very different kind of grief and sorrow than Gandalf is predicting in this moment. We are going to get to the pyre of Denethor. We're going to get to the madness of Denethor. We're going to get to uh, one of the great, I was going to say conversations, conversations doesn't quite seem, uh, doesn't quite seem sufficient, doesn't quite seem up to the task of describing the, the, the encounter, the, the battle of words and wit between Denethor and Gandalf that we will get in next week's reading, but all of that must wait. So next week, uh, chapters seven and eight, we will get through the Pyre of Denethor and we will get through the Houses of Healing. That is at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on May the 10th. I hope that you guys will be able to join me for that live session. Also, if you aren't busy tomorrow evening, that is uh, Friday the 4th. I don't know how I keep forgetting that tomorrow was Friday the 4th. It's Friday, May the 4th. May the 4th, you guys. As someone who has spent a lot of time and effort talking about Star Wars on the internet, you would think that I would remember Friday, May the 4th, particularly because, well, I have something planned for tomorrow, but I'm not going to talk anymore about that. But if you are free tomorrow evening and would like to hang out and watch a movie, might I suggest joining me at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central for a live commentary track for The Princess Bride. If you head on over to pointnorthmedia.com, then you will be able to find the uh, This Week on Point North blog post contained within which you will find the link to the YouTube page where we are going to hang out and talk all over The Princess Bride. I say we, I am going to hang out and talk all over The Princess Bride. You will need your own copy of the movie. I can't stream The Princess Bride, obviously, for, for, legal re for baffling legal reasons, which I just can't fathom at all. So you'll have your copy of The Princess Bride up on your TV and maybe me hanging out on your phone, in your earbud, just kind of chattering away over the course of the movie. You guys can all hang out in the chat. We're going to have a wonderful time. This is part of a, uh, a test of YouTube's new broadcast structure because Crowdcast has been a little unreliable of late and I want to have a couple of alternatives lined up so we may be, if this works out beautifully, transitioning back to YouTube for the bulk of our broadcasts in the near future. We will see how all of that works out. But if you're free, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, Friday, May the 4th, come hang out and watch The Princess Bride with me. I love that movie. It's a real good movie, you guys, and we'll be able to basically do some kind of Princess Bride drinking game. I don't know. It's all going to work out just fine. Um, that, though, is going to do it. Let me take a very quick look. Uh, let me cancel this slide, take a very quick look in the uh, question bucket and see if there's anything that, uh, that we can address. Um, did Sauron influence Denethor's break of self and purpose? Gandalf seems to hint at it, says Angela. Um, well, actually, we're going to talk about that next week, but uh, both yes and no. Both yes and no is where I'm going to come down on that. Yes, directly and possibly indirectly, but also there are other corruptive influences acting upon Denethor, I would argue, in addition to the influence of Sauron. I do not think that Denethor is 100% a victim of Sauron's direct and explicit action. 
We'll talk about all of that next week, though. Um, very good Khan asking, is Aomer speaking Rohiric when he sees uh, when he sees Theoden and Eowyn or the common speech? This is all part of the narrative frame of the Lord of the Rings, right? I would believe in that moment that he is, in fact, speaking Rohiric. I think that Mary is going to be hearing this language and thinking, oh, that sounds kind of familiar, right? There is no reason in that moment for Eomer to be speaking Westron, for him to be speaking the common speech. He would obviously, I think, be speaking Rohiric, but we translate it, right? Whoever, when Frodo sits down years hence to write about this, when he sits down with Mary over what I can only imagine is an implausible amount of pipeweed, right? And, and many, many second breakfasts. When they sit down to talk about uh, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, I think Mary is going to tell him this is what happened. And maybe Frodo is going to, you know, transliterate that into this attributed speech that began in the frame of the book. But yes, yes, yes. Good. Um, Emily asking, who's looking after Rohan without Eowyn? Is she dishonorable leaving her duty there? Okay, it pains me to say this, but yes. Yes, she is literally dishonorable, but no more dishonorable than both Merry and Pippin, who are also violating the orders of the king. And hey, Baragon too, right? Next week, we're going to find out that Baragon too refuses to follow orders in the pursuit of a greater good. He actually, there's a, yeah, a heartbreaking moment where Baragon is actually called upon to slay the porter so that he can get the key. It, it's very, very dark. And Baragon gets some very brief attributed dialogue there, which... The more you think about it, the more it will just break your heart and ruin you. Um, yes, Eowyn does actually betray the task entrusted to her by her lord and king. He gives her a command and she does not follow it. That, I mean, that's treason. That's the actual literal textbook definition of treason, right? But we forgive her because Eowyn is buoyed along by that same not the literal same southern wind of catastrophe, but the more generalized divine wind from the west of catastrophe, as so many other characters are, right? Look at this interlocking, this interlocking jigsaw puzzle of catastrophe. Gandalf is about to, rise, uh, to ride out and face the Witch King of Angmar. Gandalf may well not survive that, that confrontation, right? He may well not survive it. If he doesn't go and save Faramir, then Faramir dies and the line of the stewards of Gondor also comes to an end. That would be a tragedy. For all that the king is returning, that would still be a tragedy. But because Gandalf is not there, presumably, you know, just, just facing down, presumably they have some kind of pithy back and forth and then wizard fight, Right. If, because Gandalf isn't there, Eowyn gets the opportunity to stand against the Witch King of Angmar herself, as was prophesied, and slays him. Could Gandalf have slayed the Witch King of Angmar? Your guess is as good as mine. I'm going to guess not, right? I'm going to guess that Gandalf is probably included in, in the prophecy that Glorfindel gave so many years ago. But yeah, yeah. Okay, that I think is going to do it, you guys. This has been an absolute, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure talking about, uh, yeah, yes, our Faramir saying, disobedience, not treason, unless you were to act against the interests of Rohan. I would say, uh, yeah, our Faramir, like technically you're right, that is, the, that is the technical definition. I would say that abandoning her post at Edoras and riding to war is actually, is, uh, <clears throat> from the best of her understanding at the time, is acting against the interests of Rohan, right? She had no reason to believe that an extra blade in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields would make a blind bit of difference, that 6,001 men might succeed where 6,000 men would not. She had no reason to believe that that was the case, and every reason to believe that her presence in Edoras would have preserved, or at least helped to preserve, the civil and social structure of Rohan. Yes, it is treason. But yes, it is heroic. And yes, absolutely, she too is a is a tool of catastrophe, a tool of genuine greatness. And we're going to see Eowyn, of course, pivot back to, well, pivot back to? No, pivot to a different kind of, a different kind of, of role within Rohan in, in the chapters to come when we get to the Houses of Healing. Yeah. All right. 
that's going to do it for tonight, you guys. This has been, as I say, an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that I got the opportunity to talk so uh, so enthusiastically and rapturously about the end of the Battle of the Palinor Fields. As I say, next week we'll get to the Pyre of Denethor and we will get to the Houses of the Healing and then we will be back on track to get through the last debate and the march to Mordor. We will... Uh, well, we're still going to have a lot to talk about, let me tell you, before we get back to uh, Frodo and Sam. But that's going to do it for this week on There and Back Again. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!